Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, as we sit here tonight, we're approximately three weeks from the kickoff of the tour. Rehearsals are underway, and I know I speak for both of us. It's getting very exciting. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, going to be interesting to see what happens on that first night, what happens over the course of the next next year, year and a half. And Hey, it's, it's finally here. It's been a long time coming, but it's, but it's here. (laughs) Yes. So so appropriate. As I was looking today at some of our past episodes and there was the one just about a year ago today that was titled no tour 2022 question mark. When we were talking about the news that we had heard that the tour was going to be postponed for a year And it really, at the time, it seemed like it was going to be forever. And it really did go by very quickly. And we've heard a few things. We're not going to spoil anything from the rehearsals. We don't want to do that. And certainly, I'm probably going to try and remain. No, but I'm going to try and remain spoiler free to a certain extent. I did hear some of the stuff that was rehearsed the first two days. But we don't want to do that to people. Uh, We want to respect the band and allow them to reveal the show in public. And uh, hopefully I'm not going to hear too much more because I do like to be surprised. And we're going to do a full tour preview in in our next episode. We'll be looking forward to the tour, what we think could and and might happen. And of course, our our hopes and dreams for the tour as well. I can't believe it. I... Six years ago, almost exactly, I was in Australia and we were seeing the shows there and then they finished there and they did the two more shows in New Zealand. And at the time, uh, who would have thought that there wasn't going to be shows until 2023? <laughs> but with the circumstances, uh, Bruce doing Broadway, of course, the pandemic, that's how it's worked out. And I am just raring to go. <laughs> I hope they are as well. I'm sure they're going to hit the, they're going to hit the ground uh, with with all all cylinders cranking, hopefully, and it's going to be it's it's going to be going to be interesting, especially that that opening night, the first time on stage with the crowd. It's uh, it's going to be emotional, I believe. I would think so. So that's enough about the tour, as you just said. We're going to do a full preview in our next episode, and what else is going on? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is uh, send out a little apology to Jonathan Pont. We uh, incorrectly attributed loose end singular to him in in his Backstreet's review in our last episode talking about the July 18th, 99 show. But uh, he did not. He actually pluralized it, if that's a word. So he did have it as loose ends, even though I swear I read it as loose end the first time I looked at his review. But he says he never, uh, never put it singular. So Jonathan, I apologize. So what you're saying is Eric had it as loose end, but Jonathan had it as we feel is appropriate as loose ends. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Correct. All right. So, well, well, then, John, we do apologize for that. <laughs> yes, and Eric is part of the conspiracy. Well, it's just good we're here to expose that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, we are. That's what we do. Anyway, let's move on to something more substantial. You were at the Greeting Symposium this past weekend, and that's going to lead in perfectly to our topic tonight, which, of course, is the 50th anniversary of Greetings. Yes, yes. I went down. It was sponsored by the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music down there at Monmouth University. And I got to admit, walking into a into a college college, I guess, a lecture hall, more like a theater. I wasn't sure what to what to expect. Uh, it was you know eight hours of talking or seven hours of talking about 
about the album and then one hour of hearing music. I was a little skeptical, but it was actually extremely interesting. I think the fact that they had guys who played on the album, they had uh, Gary Talent, David Sanchez and, and Benny Lopez there. They also had Mike Appel on a couple of panels and he was incredibly interesting. He can, he's a good storyteller. If you can ever get, get the chance to hear him tell some of his stories from, from those days, definitely, definitely do it. I think it was on E street radio a few years ago. Uh, yeah. Doing, telling, telling a lot of those stories. So I, if it's recorded out there, definitely, definitely track it down. And it was a lot of fun. As I said, hearing those guys talk about the album, Talk about the making of the album, how they, they really didn't know what they were doing in that studio. They were kind of making it up as they went along, but um, it was fun to hear. They um, obviously give a lot of respect to Bruce's music, his, the lyrics that he wrote. They talked about, does this bus stop at 82nd Street? They actually called it Hey Bus Driver uh, because they, they actually did not know the the official official name of the uh, of the song and the most interesting thing to me is that I didn't realize that most of the band, I guess around mid 72 had moved down to, to Richmond, Gary and Davis Sanchez had. And uh, because they couldn't play in Asbury park anymore, there was uh, after the riots, a lot of the venues closed down. And then of the venues that were open of the bars that were still there, uh, they were out there welcome because they wouldn't play covers, I guess playing an original music back at that time. It didn't. It didn't do well for the door, or it didn't do well for <laughs> at, at the bar. A lot of people paying more attention to the to the band on stage than than drinking. So they uh, that's that's why they had to go down to Richmond, and for some reason they had a nice little following down there. Well, that all sounds very interesting. At which of the panels was your favorite? Oh, well, it's the one where they discussed the making of the album, and that was moderated by by Bob Santelli, one of the directors of of the archives. And on the panel were uh, Mike Appel, Gary W. Talent, uh, Dave Sanchez, and, and Vinny Lopez. And that's when a lot of them, a lot, a lot of those stories, kind of came out. And that was uh, that was very interesting. And Mike Mike Appel was part of the, one of the earlier panels as well, uh, even though we were a little bit late getting there, so so we missed a good chunk of it. And there were performances at the end of the day. Yeah, they had a bunch of Jersey Shore musicians and, and other, uh, other, other acts from, from the university and, and from, from the area. They'd actually played the album almost in order. Um, the, obviously, the highlight was when uh, Gary, Dave, and uh, Vinny Lopez came out and they played Does This Bus Stop and Saint in the City. And that was really, really good. I was actually just sitting about 10 feet behind uh, Sanchez, when he was when he was on piano, and it was just just magical just watching him play. I could have watched him play for another half hour, and that was really something. They had the uh, Jersey artist uh, Pat Roddy playing the role of Bruce, play, doing the doing guitar and, and, and singing, and that was really a, a very special couple minutes there, a few minutes there, and really sent us out on a really high note. Yeah, I saw that off of YouTube, and it did look like they did a great job. Uh, as you note, the Davy Sanctious piano solo at the end of Sane the City was really pretty scintillating. <laughs> yes, it was. As I said, I could have watched him play even just that that solo at the end there for another another five minutes, and it was just he's he's so talented, and he's he's just he's just amazing. It made me think actually of the night from Atlantic City in two thousand and three on the rising tour when they did say in the city and instead of the big guitar solo at the end, Bruce threw it to Roy and he killed it also. So that that's a song and we're going to get into the whole album right now and the various arrangements, because of course, over the years it has 
change from the original, uh, mainly acoustic arrangements that they recorded in 72, 73. But what a great song that is. Yes. And before we move on to to talk about the album itself, I want to mention that they're already making plans to do a 50th anniversary symposium for The Wild and the Innocent. And uh, we're already excited about, about, about going. And that's going to, if it's a half as good as this one, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. I forget exactly when later in the year was Wild and the Innocent released. Uh, November 5th of, of 73. So I guess they're looking at doing it sometime in October, November of, of this year. All right. Well, that'll be something to look forward to. Yes. And I hope to have another firsthand, firsthand report for you. With that, let's move on to the main topic of the evening, the 50th anniversary of Greetings from Asbury Park, which, of course, was the subject of the symposium you just reported on. And uh, neither of us were around in 1973 for the arrival of this record. And before we get into it, I, I was thinking about it while I was listening to the record. Do you recall hearing Greetings for the first time? Well, it's interesting because it was after I'd already heard Born in the USA, Born to Run, The River, Darkness. So I was kind of coming coming to it pretty late, even in the in the terms of the catalog. So I was really going back at that point. And I got to say, I, I was not blown away. I was not enamored with just about any of the tracks on there except for, for you at the time. And actually, I kind of had the similar reaction to Wild the Innocent, except for the last two songs. Um Actually, last three songs, the whole, I guess, all of side two. But yeah, it just didn't do anything for me at the time. But obviously, over the years, I've got a lot more familiar with it, seen all of them in concert. I was at the Buffalo 2009 show. And now it's uh, has a pretty good place. And in, in, in my opinion, <laughs> that anyway, I first heard it around the time I got into Bruce. It was sometime in late 79 or early 80 when I had first heard Born to Run, the song, and then I went out and I got the Born to Run cassette. And as I think we've talked about before, I wore that thing out just listening from Thunder Road to Jungle Land over and over again. It was literally life-changing. And from there, The River hadn't yet come out. And I went into the record store and I just said, like, what album should I get next? And they said, well, Greetings from Asbury Park was his first record. And I bought it. And much like you, the first impression of it, it was nothing, of course, like Born to Run had on me in terms of impact. And I sort of put it away and I would just keep listening Born to Run over and over again. <laughs> and I really didn't listen to much else, I think, in that year. And then The River came out and I did get into that. I just think that Greetings wasn't destined to have that kind of artistic impact on me as a teenager that I had with Born to Run. And so it's like you were just saying, it's totally understandable now. And the, the album does leave more of a mark for me in 2023 than it did when I first heard it. It's not one of his best records, but it's a setup for what comes later. Yes, I think it's a it's a perfect intro in some ways. It's but it shows him as a songwriter evolving. I mean, it was his first album. These were the first nine songs he ever released, and and he was still still getting there, still honing his chops. He obviously introduced a lot of people on this record, a lot of characters that that were actually from the Asbury Park area, and. It's one of those things where if he had never released another album after this, you would have looked at it and said, you know, there's he just he was an unfulfilled genius. He just hadn't hadn't he has potential here, but he hasn't reached it yet. 
And I think it would take until Born to Run to, to fully realize that. But at the same time, these songs have their have their own charm. And there's a certain, I don't know, innocence to them, for lack of a better word. Well, that's word. for sure. Yeah. And so they are there. They're they're the good place to as a good starting block for his music and, and for and for his career. Let's talk about the base of the recording sessions. Bruce was joined by Vinny Lopez, Gary Talent, and Davy Sanchez, all of whom you saw over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the label did not really want him to record with a band at all. They wanted him to be the solo singer songwriter, the new Dylan. And Bruce stuck to his guns and recorded the core of the record with those three musicians. Now, as the story has been told many times by Bruce, Clive Davis, who is known as a genius for a reason, heard what Bruce handed in and said, hold on here. We don't have any songs that are going to get radio play. You got to go back in and come up with something. And of course, Bruce did that much like 11 years later with Dancing in the Dark, where Landau said something to him very similar in a different circumstance. Here, he did come back with two really top-notch songs, Blinded by the Light and Spurred in the Night. Yes. Actually, I think Mike Appel was actually on the singer-songwriter side of it. He, he, that was the, that's what he wanted. He wanted all the solo stuff. And so did John Hammond. But Bruce said, no, I want to have a band on, on this album. And Mike Appel had never seen Bruce with the band at that point. He hadn't gone to any of those performances up and down the Jersey shore or down to Richmond. So he, he was like, sure, Bruce, go ahead and bring in the band. I'll, you know, basically humoring him. And then he, they came in and yeah, they, Bruce, uh, Bruce brought his band leader chops to the, to the studio. And one interesting, one interesting story that, that Mike Capel did tell this weekend that I'm not really sure if I knew it before, or maybe you'll, you'll tell me if you've heard it before that when Clarence was recording his parts by himself, like just in, in the booth by himself, he really lived up to the nickname Sir Squawks a lot. <laughs> and he just he just couldn't do it. And but so he brought in the rest of the band and, of course, to, to play the song. And he wasn't recording anybody in the band except for Clarence. And and at that point, Clarence Clarence nailed it. And so that was pretty interesting to know that, you know, Clarence needed to have a have a supporting cast to, to really uh, fulfill his promise. That's actually really interesting stuff. And you just think, had Davis not said to Bruce, go and come back with a couple of other songs, Clarence may not have been on the record at all. And what would have happened from there? I I assume they still would have teamed up anyway at some point, and maybe Clarence would have been part of the touring show. But it it seems so incredible today that if not for that circumstance – this debut album would be electric guitar free, except for a tiny bit on Blinded and sax free. Yeah, which just seems totally inconceivable because he is the sax almost makes the song uh, in Blinded, and and obviously without the sax, Spirit in the Night just would just sound dead. And well, but those songs brought, didn't exist. What I mean is that he Bruce wrote them and then he then he called Clarence and what if he couldn't find Clarence apparently Clarence was a little bit MIA during that summer of 72 before uh, before Bruce was able to locate him to come in and do these two songs so he Bruce ha- would have had the songs he just wouldn't have had Clarence on them and that just and would, they would not would not have worked based on what they were saying the other day do you think he would have had another horn player on them or there just would have been minus the horn 
that I don't know. I'm sure he could have found another horn player if if Bruce was really intent on on having a, a horn on that on that song. But but Clarence was his guy. I mean, you know, going back to the infamous legendary, uh, you know, walking down the street in the in the middle of a huge storm in September of '71. So Clarence was the guy. He just thankfully he, they found him. And yeah, as you said, thankfully Clive Davis said, "I don't hear a single. You got to you got to give me a couple more songs here." As I said, Clive knows what he's doing. <laughs> and I did go back and listen. One of the songs that was cut from the album he handed in was a seven minute and 44 second <laughs> uh, rambling ditty called Visitation at Ford Horn. Now, I, Bruce Springsteen would not be Bruce Springsteen if he had to build his career on Visitation at Ford Horn. <laughs> Let's just. And, I, it's, I, so. and it's funny because Mike Appel mentioned that on, on, on Saturday and he, he really liked the song. He was disappointed. That song got bumped, but obviously, uh, as, as you pointed out, and actually Brian Hyatt said the same thing in his book I was reading just a little while ago. He didn't like it either. So, yeah, it was long, rambling. It probably didn't go anywhere. I haven't listened to it in a long time. And, yeah, that one, uh, yeah. <laughs> Blinded in Spirit versus Visitation at Fort Horn. I think Bruce made the right call. Oh, yeah. And, and when you think down the road, certainly from this record, the lasting impact. Well, I think Spirit in the Night is probably the biggest one, right? Oh, absolutely. That's that was main one on the darkness tour and on the, even on the river tour and even early parts of the, of the USA tour. Big, big time because he that's when he would go into the audience. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> remember those days? I certainly remember <laughs> Actually, I that. Think, I, I think you and I missed those back in the in the clubs in 75. No, but I saw it in 84. He jumped into the crowd during Spur in the Night at the Meadowlands. There you go. So it was a long time song that's uh made it a it's been an important one in his canon the other interesting thing that i read in doing the research for this episode was when he had to go back into the studio based on clive davis's instructions there was actually a third song called the chosen which in in brian's book he says that has never circulated on bootleg are are you aware of that song he's right Brian's right. That song has never circulated in any capacity, and I hope they still have it. So if they ever do a kind of a vault clearing release from from the early 70s, it would be included. But I don't even think I knew about that song till literally just within the last couple of years. And unfortunately, we don't know what it sounds like. We just know the just know the title and an alternate title, which I cannot remember at the time, but it's on Bruce Bass. So, and last thing before we go track by track, in the sessions that were done after Clive Davis recommended that they come up with some radio-friendly material, Gary Talon and David Sanchez were not there, right? That is true. And so Bruce played the bass, and uh, they had this guy, Harold Wheeler, come in and, and play piano. And I kind of wish uh, you know Sanchez was on those two tracks, but uh, I can, uh, you know, he, he had somewhere else to be at that time. I think they were down in Richmond. Yes, that would that would that would make sense. They I guess they did the sessions, they went back down to Richmond and then when when Bruce said, "Okay, we guys we got to go on tour." Then he called them again and, and and they came and and from that point on it was it was a regular gig. So here we go into the tracks. Let's go back to the beginning, Blinded by the Light as Bruce introduced it to open the November 24th, 1996 show. Greetings from Asbury Park. <laughs> Yep, that was the Go one ahead. that started it, started it all off. That isn't it, Madman Drummers, Bummers, and Engines in the Summer. Well, yes, the Madman Drummers and Indians. What what is the line? <laughs> <laughs> Madman Drummers, Bummers, <laughs> and Indians in the Indians Summer, in the like summer, a teenage right. diplomat. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, 
That's the theme of this record. It's autobiographical in large part, not all of it, but much of it. And this is a song, as Bruce has told the story many times, he took a rhyming dictionary. He took stuff that was happening to him or had happened to him, (laughs) and he set it to music. (laughs) Yeah, and he said by the time he was done, the, the rhyming dictionary was on fire in his hand. He was really going to that. And man, there's a lot of imagery in this song. It's, oh, yeah. it's just um, uh, every line, it, you know, there's no wasted word, word here. It just keeps going on and on. And you could don't, we can almost talk about each, each verse individually, but, um, you know, I, I, mama always shows- told him to look, not to look into the sun, but hey, that's where the fun is. That's the key line of the whole song. And it shows Brian's level of research because Indians in the summer is a reference to Bruce's Little League team. And Brian, in his book, The Stories Behind the Song, cites that he found a newspaper article that referred to Bruce (laughs) playing on the Indians from like 1964 or something like that. Oh, it must have been before that. It had to be before 61. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, the name of his Little League team and the, the Madman Drummers is obviously Vinny Lopez. Yes, I don't know. I don't know who the teenage diplomat was, but that could have been anybody, anybody in that neighborhood. And I think the takeaway from this song is he's basically saying, this is who I am. There are some things that I've done. There are some things that I haven't done and I haven't seen them yet, but I'm going to and (laughs) world I'm here. And you know what? He was right. It took it took him some time, probably more than he would have liked. But eventually that did happen. Yes, yes, it did. He was announcing his presence to the world with authority as uh, as eric cartman once said on south park that pretty much set the stage for literally everything that followed if you think about it 50 years later this is one of the great opening tracks to anyone's career ever uh, the riff the sentiment he's expressing how well it actually still hits home it really works to in terms of when we talk about his narrative beginning at the beginning and <laughs> working until today, uh, this is a perfect example of it. I, Blind, it sets everything up. Absolutely. And it's the perfect, perfect opener, not just to the album, but as you said, to his career. And I can't speak to every great artist's first song on their first record, but but yeah, this one to me would be it. Now, of course, his writing style would change, as we know. It would change, actually, rather quickly. By Wild and the Innocent, he was different than he was on Greetings. And, of course, from Born to Run, it was way different than he had done anything on the first two records. That's one of the reasons why I think Born to Run was such a big step forward. And looking at the next song here, Coming Out of Blinded, we get to Growing Up, which, again, is is an autobiographical tale that really does set up much of what is to come later. Oh, absolutely. And that's his story up to, up to that point growing up. And it, it would become the story that, or the song in which he would he would tell so many stories over the next 50 years, whether it's uh, going to find God with, with Clarence or, or going to, f- or hanging out with aliens or, or the dancing bear. It just became such a centerpiece of, of the show. And, and it tells his story. It's, it's the story of, how things began, and that's always uh, it's always a highlight of, of those shows. But with an edge, I think it's <laughs> it, it's got that point. expression of defiance in it that I think would really mark his early work. And in, in a way, he's saying 
the world is not always with you. And and if you think about how Grown Up was used to set up Springsteen on Broadway, where he talked about the troubles that he endured and being in Freehold, and it was sort of a redneck town and all of that stuff. That's all contained here in the song. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when they said, sit down, he stood up. Right. And he, all, and he hid in the... Didn't quite hide in the in the warmth of the crowd, but he I guess he wanted to be in, in in some ways, but he just didn't he didn't quite fit, and this was his way of of telling his own side of the story. And uh, one of the key lines he found the the key to the universe in the engine of an old parked car, which ended up, you know, that's where there there he I was reading in, in the Brian Hyatt book again about. There's a lot of art is considered, a lot of pop art is considered kind of disposable and, and transient. But for him and for, and for others, there's a lot of meaning in there. And then that's what he was kind of making the metaphor of. Yeah. And it's a song I think that he knows that he's not fully right in the world at the moment he's writing it. But he knows he's got something. He, he was very intuitive in that regard, that he knew he had something and he believed in himself. And as we know, that would serve him very well in the coming years. Well, you have to believe in yourself to, in that kind of, in that, in that job, in, in, that, in the entertainment industry. You have to have a lot of faith in yourself because you're going to fail a lot. But if you believe in yourself, you get up, you keep going. And, and that's, what he, that's what he did. This is a song. It's such a seminal song. This is, I think, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think there are probably four songs on this record. We already talked about how important Spirit in the Night is. There's Spirit in the Night. There's Growing Up. Those are, I think, the two really significant songs in the catalog. And then you've also got Blinded and Say in the City. Those are the four songs, I think, from this record that really endure for me you could maybe put lost in the flood in the same category, but I I don't think it rises to that, to those four in terms of impact for the general audience. Yes. I I would agree with that. I would say there are three tiers on this album as the first one being what you, the songs you listed blinded growing up spirit and Satan, the city. And then behind that, you got bus stop, you got lost in the flood. I would put for you at the top of the next tier. And then of course you got the Mary queen and the angel. But well, yeah. and that yeah. was a, and that was a perfect <laughs> setup to move into the next track because the next track is Mary Queen of Arkansas, one of the great review lines of all time. I, I well, Robert Christgau called it the turgid, unaccompanied <laughs> acoustic horror. Yeah, pretty much sums it up. Uh, Bruce, uh, I think one of the panels they said on on Saturday they said you know Bruce went ahead and got his worst song of his career out out of his system on the first album and and here it is it's just it really doesn't go anywhere for me no. and it just it's i wanted to end it seems in, interminable we claudine and i were listening to it on the way down and it's just like oh my god when is this song in and it's just there's nothing to it and and then in 2014 bruce bruce revealed that it was a it was about a transgender a man in love with a transgender did you had you ever thought about that before I really haven't thought about the song much at all. And it, the, the funny thing, the, the funny thing is in on the reunion tour, you know, when it popped up a few times and we saw mm-hmm. it at, at, on the June 27th show, which was released right. and people get excited about rarities as do we, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> That's our but life there, right there. But, but, but there are certain rarities like, uh, 
you know, if I never saw Mary Queen of Arkansas again, I'd be perfectly fine with it. <laughs> yes, it, I, I understand that. Um, although I, I don't think it's the worst track of his career. As you know, I thought it was surpassed by working on a dream. What, the song or the album? The song, the song. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely more, Mary Queen is definitely more lyrically complex than working on a dream. That is absolutely 100% true. And there, again, a lot of, lot of weird imagery in, in this one. I, the line about the, the shadow of a noose above your bed. That that always kind of kind of scared me. I guess he was talking about this person was gonna was gonna hang themselves or something. So that that line always freaked me out. But but yeah, for the most part, it's pretty it's pretty forgettable. And as you said, probably hadn't thought about it in years. Actually, I hadn't thought about it probably since the last time I listened to the June twenty seventh, two thousand archive release. Yeah, I, this is one I never listened to. And it, it, when I heard Visitation at Fort Horn this morning, it hit me in sort of the same fashion. Now, of course, that one is seven minutes and 44 seconds, so it's even more interminable. But it just goes to show if Clive Davis had not interceded and this had been a record, a main more like songs like Mary Queen of Arkansas and Visitation at Fort Horn, what would have happened? Uh, <laughs> That's a very good question. I think uh, he probably would have gone on to that second album. I, I, it's not like Blinded or Spirit was a hit. It's not like they were they went up the charts or anything. But the album itself probably would have been less <laughs> less less uh, warmly received, but by the critics anyway. But I think he still would have gone on to the second album. And that right, probably and, and perhaps everything that probably would have been not the have, same. At that from that point, yes, I think everything just would have continued the way it did. But still. Blinded and, and Spirit definitely, <laughs> definitely better than Mary Queen and, and Visitation of Fort Horn. I would agree. And let's just move on to the next song, which <laughs> is much more fun and, and much more entertaining. And I think there's a reason why something like Does This Bus Stop still gets played fairly frequently in later years. This is a song, again, it's autobiographical. He literally had a friend who lived on 82nd Street, and this is the tale of his trip <laughs> to go see the friend and the sights that he saw out the window. And as a New York City song, I, I think it works beautifully well. This starts to show it's much more interesting and, I think, concise than something like Mary Queen of Arkansas. What do you think? Oh, oh, exactly. And the, I mean, the only criticism of this song is that it just kind of ends. And it's only two minutes long. I could, could easily have listened to another minute of it. You know, a three minutes long would have been perfectly acceptable at, at, at that time. But it, you're right. It's fun. The imagery, the sweat sock pimps and, and, and well, uh, <laughs> the sweat sock pimps and what a mongrel nymphs. Interstellar, interstellar <laughs> mongrel nymphs. Exactly. And then the painted women in Vista Vision. Yeah, these this imagery is a lot more fun. The music is mu- music is great. It's just it, it really it's fun. It's rollicking. It's rolling. And uh, yeah, another minute longer. And this probably could have been a hit single in, in some way. No. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment because I want to talk about the ending. But the other key thing in this, he gives his life mission statement here. The Daily News asked her for the dope and man, the dopes that there's still hope and hope, as we know, has been a recurring major theme of his career. And this is where he sets it out right there. No matter what, how bad what's going on, there is still hope. Exactly. And that's probably the reason he brought it out on the Joe tour. Remember when, uh, 
he did the oldie oldie song oldie slot in the in the first encore was was this one and it it kind of complements across the border with the line for what are we without hope in our hearts and and here you go what the dope is that there's still hope and that yes that that was a, that was almost the theme to 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 the Joe tour it's like things may be bad but across the border you know we have hope and that's why this show exists to connect the dots. He was, <laughs> I don't think he did it necessarily intentionally, but he had, I think a he did. Passion. I think he did. You, you think, think he did? did? Oh, I think that was the reason he, he, he brought out that song. I, I totally. Oh, that. Him. Yes. Yes. But you don't believe that when he wrote across the border, he was intentionally calling back to the line, man, the dope that there's still hope. Well, no, but as you said, it's been a recurring theme throughout his career. And so while he may not have said at that moment, oh, let me let me connect it back to to my first album, I just think is because hope is such a, a major right, part of, right. of all his songs. A hundred percent. OK. All right. Yeah, I totally <laughs> agree with everything you're saying there. And of course, okay. we know this land of hope and dreams. I mean, it's just it's 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 over and over again. And it is a very powerful theme. Now, getting back to the end, I don't think it cuts off as abruptly as some other people because he's. if you've envisioned this guy on a bus, he's going to 82nd Street. And then the last thing, Senorita Spanish Rose wipes her eyes and blows her nose uptown in Harlem. She throws a rose to some lucky young matador. To me, that is the ending because he, he just said there's still hope. The hope is that's love flourishing right there. So <laughs> what's more hopeful than that? That's true. I hadn't thought about it. hadn't thought about it that way. And that the hope is that she will be, he will be the matador to whom she throws her rose. That does make sense. And and they, they never said whether the friend on Eighty Second Street was was male or female. That's so true. In, in that in that case, maybe he was going up there to to visit a a girlfriend, and uh, he was just hoping that she would throw his rose to him. Very fun song. And the performances, especially in 2012 with the extended yes. band, were excellent. I expect we're going to see it again this year because the band is going to be similarly extended. And yeah, and the, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, the, the percussion back and forth between Max and Everett back in, in 12 to, to 14, I, that was huge highlight. Huge highlight, and I expect them to do it again this year. All right, so let's move on to Lost in the Flood. And this song to me is very interesting because – it doesn't really fit in as much with the rest of this album, but yet, and much like the theme of hope, the themes of Lost in the Flood, This, if, if they had taken Lost in the Flood, if it had never been released in 1973, and they recorded it during the Born in the USA sessions, more in the musical style that that album reflected, I think the it, the song would have fit perfectly on Born in the USA with Born in the USA, don't you? Well, it is the the Vietnam theme that definitely was a huge theme, at least in the eighties, and this was the only real solid Vietnam song from from the entire seventies. I I mean, overtly anyway. I, I don't can't think of anything on Darkness that would that would match that description. And so, yeah, and I think the the arrangement that they came up with in, in starting in 2000 at that last night of the reunion tour into 2003 and ever since, that is not exactly too far from what the music would have sounded like in, in, in the situation or scenario you just described of recording. That's that song exactly in, in how I came. Yeah, that's exactly how I came up with it, actually, when I was listening to 7-1. And I don't want to jump ahead in terms of our discussion of the song, 
but you're correct. You know, for all the talk that they were better in 78, and nobody is denying that the Darkness Tour and the River Tour was the band's peak, but not every song was better in those years. Now, Lost in the Flood was very infrequently played, especially after, what, 76, 77? Well, the last performance but, of it was in 78 until that, until that Garden Show in 2000. So he went 12 right. years without playing it, or like 22 years without playing it. Math was never my strong suit. The 7-1 version of Lost in the Flood was the best performance of the song ever. They, I think they fully realized it, it took how many years? That was 27 years after the album was released. He fully realized the song on that night. Oh, exactly. And that to me, that was the definitive version, definitive performance of that song. Until November 22nd, 2009. Uh, I thought the performance in Buffalo actually was better than the one at the Garden. I know it's, I know it's, it's, you know, it takes cojones to say that to you, especially, but it was. The, I thought the guitar at the end was much more realized. It went on longer and it just felt more, just felt more powerful in, overall in the end. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. I wasn't in Buffalo, so I can't really give a fair comparison. But of course, I've heard that show on the archive release. 7-1 to me is the more powerful version because of the keyboard intro that sort of rose out of the darkness and the way that Max slammed into the song. In Buffalo, the first part of the song was just Bruce and Roy and the New York City performance, when we realized what it was, that was just such a huge moment. So I I may be biased, but I don't think that one can be topped. Okay, I can can see what you're saying. And I think the coming in with the big drum beat earlier in the song before you got to the Jimmy, the saint line. Yeah. It made it, I can see where it made it a bit more powerful, but I thought it also worked just, just Bruce and and Roy, as you said, until the Jimmy, the saint line, I thought that was just as effective, just as effective. All right. But let's get to the song itself because we're really supposed to be discussing the album version. (laughs) And what do you think of the album version? Well, this is one of my favorites from, from from this record. I always I'm always fascinated about how they got that that um, that sound. I guess it was some kind of amplifier feedback burst to open it. Um, I was um, like I said, I was wonder how exactly they got. It. I'll have to ask Steve at some point if I ever get the get the guts to do that. Hey Steve, remember what you did 50 years ago? Um, but otherwise, I, I it's very interesting about the way that they kind of takes uses a street gang battle up in the Bronx as, as a metaphor f- for the war. And that was always 
it's the whiz-bang gang from uptown. I mean, that's the, that's the Viet Cong, is it not? I think so. It goes back to what we were saying, where this is the one song, at least the release song, that reflects these themes from the 1970s, because the, the war is clearly very heavily on his mind here. Oh, absolutely. And especially when you consider that, you know, two of his bandmates from the Castiles, uh, or at least Bart Haynes and then uh, uh, the Chacon brothers, one of them died. Uh, it made a made a huge impact on him. So I'm not really surprised that he would turn to this theme on, on his first album. And then the, that theme continues uh, uh, even clearer when he says, hey, could you think that's oil, man? That ain't oil, that's blood. That is the the carnage, I think, there is is the carnage of war, mm-hmm. even though he's using this narrative. And that, we should mention that also, in and of itself, that makes it a little different from some of the other songs here, because this song is not autobiographical. This is, I, I think, the first of these songs that's a full narrative, where he's telling a tale, as he would come to do in so many other circumstances as, as his career went on. Oh, that's that's a that's a great point. Yeah, he wasn't he was writing mostly firsthand experiences, especially on this album. But then he wasn't really getting into telling other people's tales until you get to at least the river, if 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 not Nebraska. And he does a phenomenal job here. And I just I just I just love it. I love the way he just I mean, the ending about, you know, still breathing when I walked away. Why are you walking away if he's uh, if he's still breathing? Why don't you try to do something? But it's not to be. Yeah, it's a powerhouse ending to a powerhouse song. And it, it, it's funny because we don't cite it for the general fan base, as we were saying, it doesn't really register like some of the other songs. But I think in terms of assessing his catalog, this is one of the most important songs on this record. I would have to agree with you. As as we said, it set up the, the theme of Vietnam and its consequences uh, for the next next 10 15 years and and you're right it's not one that casual fans do but if someone is a little bit bigger someone who knows all the songs on the albums i think they're going to get into it people who may not reach who <laughs> may not be as obsessive as we are but still know his catalog quite well will definitely they they definitely appreciate it more than more than someone who just wants to hear hungry heart and glory days well, I think we can agree that nobody's going to want to hear the next song, which is not a particularly major song. That song is The Angel. Now, you've actually seen it perform live because you were at the Buffalo performance that I was not at. And I, I can't say that I'm sitting here hoping in tour 2023 <laughs> that we actually see The Angel because I'm not. This one, it's better than Mary Queen of Arkansas. We'll give it that, right? Yes, it, yes, it is. It's a lot more melodic and it's a lot more... Yeah, the the music is a lot more soothing than, than than Mary Queen, and I was listening to the Buffalo performance earlier, and I really liked the cello that that they used on it. I thought it that was great. Make, I think it really added it added a lot to the song. And you're right; it's not something I'm I'm going to be holding a sign for, <laughs> you know, come February or March. But at the same time, it's not it's not the worst song, not the worst song. It does have some interesting imagery in here. I, I, I think in keeping with some of the more flowery stuff that he had on greetings that he'd get away from later on, especially by Born to Run, uh, the woman stroking the polished chrome. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> metaf- metaphors, Al, metaphors. 
I mean, that, that, yeah, that, but that's a pretty direct metaphor, I have to say. <laughs> Look, not every song is going to be great. We've encountered this before in, in uh, with some of the other records, but here early in his career, it, when he's still finding himself, this is a song that you actually can see. Uh, again, it's it's autobiographical, right? Um, well, he's talking about, I didn't get this at first. I always assumed he was talking about some, uh, you know, st- you know, street person who rides a bicycle everywhere and uh, a woman street person riding a bicycle with, with hunchback children, other orphans of the street. But at the symposium, they were talking about how it's about a hell's angel. I really never, never really. Oh, really? Up on that. Yeah. I didn't get that either. Also, maybe yeah, I'm was, wrong. Maybe it's not autobiographical. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was. I might have been somebody he knew, but it certainly wasn't. I don't think he was the one riding around with baseball cards in his spokes. At least that's not that's not how how I took it. But which actually was always a line that always perked my ears up because I did collect baseball cards when I was a kid. So, well, but that, the thing is, and maybe baseball cards and spokes as we're talking about it that's really a bicycle thing uh, this is yeah. uh, do, do motorcycle riders do that because this is a song uh, correct me if i'm totally wrong the this is a song about uh, a motorcycle rider right well that's what you would think but of course the reason you would put the baseball cards in your spokes is to make it sound like a motorcycle so maybe he's saying uh, it sounds like the motorcycle is is a bicycle that has baseball cards in its spokes. I don't know. It's not. This is not a song I've actually put a lot of thought into over the years, and I guess you probably haven't either. That's definitely fair to say. And what was your impression in Buffalo when it was played? I agree with you that the cello worked very well. I did like this song at, at that performance. I thought he delivered it in a, in a very tender way. It was very, very soft and... And, and gentle and then the cello really added a lot and it wasn't a, a song that I, I was especially looking forward to hearing it wasn't saint in the city or lost in the flood but when he did it it was it, it felt really good and i guess feeling good i guess that's a weird way to say i i enjoyed the performance quite a bit all right well there are three more songs on the record all three are songs i think that have particular impact the song after the angel is for you Again, I think an autobiographical song for him, to me, the best of the love songs on this first record, and I think one that endures very well to this day, especially when he does the solo piano version. What other love songs do you see on this album besides Mary Queen? Well, isn't the angel a love song? I get. I wouldn't you say? Uh, well, the well, the angel's written about a hell's angel about a motorcycle rider. I'm not really sure. I see that as as a love song, but uh, well, he's okay. trying to get a what in this in the well. Maybe I'm totally mis. Now we're going back. Maybe I'm totally <laughs> misinterpreting it. He's trying to get a woman in the song, right? I don't think so. Go back and read the lyrics. It's all he. The angel is he writing. No, that, of course, but I'm saying, I mean, at the end of the song, the woman is stroking his polished chrome. Right, but I didn't really, not, I thought that was, he was just telling a story a, about the angel. He wasn't really trying to woo a, woo the girl or woo the woman. All right. Uh, maybe uh, maybe we're I'm gonna, wrong in that, but we're, we're going to go back. At, more, more, yeah, but as far <laughs> as for you. Down. Well, and for you, that's a breakup song. It's not a really a love song, is it? Come on. Uh, well, I think the way he performs it in present day, oh. it, it it does sort of have a love song feel to me. I think as with some of his other songs, 
things get a little recontextualized. <laughs> you don't think it really feel that for you does feel more like a song that's calling to a woman if well, it's not the, the, a traditional love song? Well, there's certainly the performances that he's done on piano, as you said. Yeah, those are, they come across as more of a love song, but he's talking, of, it's. but the lyrics are about a breakup. I guess it's not unusual to have the lyrics and music be somewhat, uh, you know, not not in sync. I don't know what the best word would be, but it's, you know, you let your blue walls get in the way of these facts. Get your carpetbaggers off my back. Uh, right, but you know, it that's, isn't that's an expression. That's something you would of- say after a breakup. No, I agree 100% with you, but isn't the expression of pain that can't also be in a love song? I mean, uh, it's but he's not like he's not saying I want you back. It's it's she kind of went sounds like to me and like she kind of went crazy when they broke up. She painted all her walls blue and right. And she was sleeping with the carpet baggers and that doesn't seem to be a like he's not saying I'm coming back for you. It's I came for you at the time and now we're broken up. So let's keep going our separate ways. That's, that's how I hear it. You've gone, you've gone crazy. This may be a little bit more of a commentary on our own personal lives and the type of women we've been with over the, over the years. I don't know in terms of how we're interpreting this song. No, I think Bruce, one of the early performances, I think it was in 74, 73, when he was introducing the song, he actually said that when he broke up with this girl, she, she painted the, the walls of her, of her room blue. And that's where that's oh, where yeah. got the, got the imagery. And, and I, and I actually, what I take, what I uh, relate to that was an episode of NYPD blue, where the, the, the detective played by the guy who was on say by the bell. Something uh, I forget his name. How you probably know he was dating someone who went off their meds, and she painted all her walls black. So I, that's Mark, what I was. Kind Mark of, Paul Gosseler. That's it. And when she painted all her walls black, and so that's I kind of always relate these two t- together. And of course, off she was off her meds, and she was go- she was going a little little overboard with with a lot of things. Okay, I, I'll go along with you on that, and the. Surfer girl in the song is the same girl from the Broadway show, right? Where he told the story about the girl he was dating and that she, he found out she was, she said she was going to help him with introduce him to other musicians. And it turned out that she ran off with one of them. Uh, yeah, it was the fact that this, this guy, this scout talent scout was coming down from the city. They were going to say, we're going to check him out. And at the end of, at the end of the show, they said, yeah, you guys are great. You guys are great. And then he slept with his girlfriend and left town. <laughs> right. um so yeah that's it, that's the same familiar. girl right it does sound very familiar i'd be surprised if it wasn't so but of course you know i think every song in this album is about a different girl <laughs> he was quite the uh man whore back in the day it's funny it's funny how people look at songs differently and 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 i totally acknowledge it's a song about pain he's lost the girl it's a split up but to me it the question is, I guess here's what it comes down to, and then we'll move on to spirit, although I do find this interesting. Is he longing for the girl he's singing about and for you? I don't think so. I think he's talking about the about the pain and the, of the breakup or that she was just too much for him and he needs to move on. But at one point, he came for her. But now uh, she let her blue walls get in the way of these facts. So he's, he's moving on, wants to move okay. on. Maybe she's the one calling him. See, now, I think I've hit upon why I feel it's a love song. I would probably take that call and try to save her, Blue Walls and All. 
you know, I never would have thought that about you, Hal, to be perfectly honest. That's, uh, that's definitely something I've learned tonight. Well, maybe we've gone too far into my life. <laughs> Let's get back to Bruce's work. And the important thing is from here in 1973, his writing would eventually become a lot more economical. And here we have a great example of that. We can we can contrast this with, with Spare Parts, where in Spare Parts, it's Bobby said he'd pull out, Bobby stayed in. And uh, and for you, it's the metal in, on your chest always got in the way. Right. And he would develop very quickly because by 1975, of course, Born to Run opens with Thunder Road. In that song, he tells you where he wants to go. And I think he tells you also where the audience should want to go. And, and there certainly isn't the same level of clarity here. Oh, no, not not at all. I, and I think that's kind of goes back to the his, his evolution, his development of the songwriter going from these incredibly wordy songs to something more more concise, more economical. I mean, e- even if you compare Born to Run with Born in the USA, the the first four lines of Born, the, Born in the USA say so much, yet it's like, what, 16, 16 words? I mean, it's it's not even that much. And he, but he paints the whole picture when that's in that short, small, that short first verse. So, all right, let's move on to Spirit, which is one of the two songs that he came up with after Clive Davis said, go back and, and come up with some radio friendly songs. Spirit, as we said, is the most enduring song, I think, from a crowd standpoint. It was the one he played the most. And by far, it's the most E Street sounding song because of the presence of Clarence from this record. Oh, exactly. It's You're right. It's been the crowd pleaser ever since. It was actually the single. I mean, it certainly didn't do anything on the charts, but it was a single. It was played on the radio. Bruce talked about one of his most uh, top 10 moments of his life was when he, he was standing on the corner and they were playing a gig at some college town in Connecticut and somebody drove by, they had the windows down and they were playing spirit in the night. And he, that was, he was like, he had made it. He felt he had made it at that point. So um, I forget entirely where, where I wanted to go with that, but I thought that was a little, little cool inter- interlude, but yeah, it's the most E street and the most enduring song. As you said, it's a, I mean, it's a crowd favorite and the way he, uh, I mean, I'm going to say this, the way he bloated it out on the last tour about can you feel the spirit? And he kind of he kind of keeps that going a little bit longer than, than maybe I would like. But the crowd, the crowd eats it up and, and they love it. And then certainly when he would uh, at the end of the song, he falls down and or he's laying down on the stage and letting the female fans uh, have their way with <laughs> with him was that's always a highlight for for some people. Now, I don't know if Mike Appel talked about this at all over the weekend. In Brian's book, he talks about how he spoke to Appel and that this track made Mike understand why Bruce wanted a band. Did he reference that at all over the weekend? He didn't at, at, at the times that I saw him, but he. But as I said, we were a little bit late, so we missed the first thirty minutes of uh, of the of the day. And we when we walked in, he was actually at the podium speaking. So I don't know if he said anything before our arrival. But yeah, uh, I think once uh, once Mike heard that one and saw Bruce with the band, he he realized you know Bruce can do that too. In addition to to just being a singer songwriter, Brian has more great detail here because he says that this song is memorializing one evening that Bruce spent with a girl named Diane Lozito. <laughs> yeah, they were hanging out at a beach party. She was dating someone else, and and then Bruce and Diane kind of snuck away, and they kind of made out for a while, and then Diane said, hey, I think it's time to go. And uh, that's where that line came from. And 
fortunately, Diane ended up being, turning into his girlfriend about a year later. <laughs> so it all worked out. And the imagery in this song is really a lot of fun with Crazy Janie and Wild Billy. It really makes you feel like this is a night you wish you spent with them. <laughs> That's true. I don't know if I would call it imagery. He's just he's just telling a story. And uh, as the night, from the start of the night to the end of the night about uh, it's time to go, as, as, as I said. And he really... Yeah, it sounds like a hell of a night, hell of a summer night down at, down at the shore. Yes, it does. And now moving on to the closing track, Sane in the City. Of course, this was the first song that Bruce played for John Hammond. It got him his record deal. The Hammond demo is on tracks. I take this song as pretty much an announcement that I'm going to conquer the big city. And he would in time. Yeah, going going back to the what you said about it was a song that got him his record deal. He actually talked about that on the at a few shows in 2012. He said this was his lucky song. I'm thinking of the July 28th show, July 28th 2012 show from Gothenburg, I believe. And he really talked about it. That was a song that got him his record deal, and uh, his it's his lucky song, as I said. And yeah, I think Hammond said that as soon as he heard this one, he he pre perked right up. And and yeah, the imagery has uh, certainly held its own over the last 50 years. It certainly has. And the confidence in this song, I could walk like Brando right into the sun and dance like a Casanova. As we said earlier in the episode, he knew what he wanted. He knew where he wanted to go and he believed he had the talent to take him there. And he bet on himself. And as we know, 50 years later, he won big time. But but at the same time in the song, he was just a backstreet gambler with the luck to lose. So he was still a little bit uh, self-deprecating, if not, you know, down on himself on that line. But yeah, he he bet he did bet on himself in the long run. And, and while this song hasn't been played as frequently over the years as some of the other songs, particularly Spirit, this is one that highlights the band, and it just every time it it is played, it's it's a killer track and the audience loves it it stands as a great closing statement for this record and to send them out and to what would be a second record and beyond yes and i was going to say in the live performances the the way that uh, i feel like at one point it was more of a piano jam at the end of the song and then later on it became more of a guitar duel between him and steve and I just I, I need to go back and figure out where that transition happened or if I'm just totally imagining that. I, feel I like think it's, it's actually gone back and forth at times because the guitar duel, of course, was present on the Darkness Tour. It's been present for much of the reunion tour. But it seems like there are certain nights like the Atlantic City that I cited earlier in the episode where he tossed it to Roy. Maybe it's just how he feels on a specific evening. Yeah. and But either way, everybody shines when when they do that. I was listening to to the Buffalo performance, as I said earlier, and on headphones. And I love the way that Bruce is in the center channel and then Steve is, is pan, is pan right. So you really get the feeling that you're in between, in between them having that guitar duel. I did not see this song for the longest period of time. We were talking last episode about my white whales. This was the white whale for me for, I missed it on the reunion tour twice by one night. <laughs> That's right. And you did. I, and I finally saw it on the rising tour. I think Atlantic city was the first time. And it was, it was so exciting because it's such an important song for his career. And in 2016, when he went to the 73 
bass set list. This was this was a key song most of those nights. Oh, absolutely. I, this was one of my my favorites from that from that first hour of the show, and and I think I saw it a couple times in the in the summer of two thousand three. I know I saw it at the one of the Philly Stadium shows, and I thought that was really something special. This is one I'll take any <laughs> night. It it just it hits home every time, and yes, it does. If you think, and they probably will play it because again, it's the fiftieth anniversary of Greetings, and I, I'm going to really be looking forward to that. Yes, me me too. I'm it's uh, I'm ready for them to come out. Let Steve and Bruce have have that guitar duel uh, a few more a few nights this year. Let's hope it happens. All right. Well, I think that brings our discussion of greetings to the end. 50 years gone by. Fortunately, we're not that old, as I said, to remember when it first came out. But if there is anyone out there who does remember the day it actually came out in 1973 in January, give us a shout out because it'd be very interesting to hear from people like that. Well, again, going back going back to the symposium, they did talk about how People who came to to Bruce later on after hearing, say, Darkness, the River in USA, they have a different reaction uh, than the people who heard greetings, you know, maybe not on January 5th, 73, but certainly any time that year, whether it was the first album, basically whether it was the first album from Bruce that they ever heard. And there, there is a difference. I think people who got on a little bit earlier, I think they gravitated toward it more than, say, than say you and I did. And I, and I think that's a that's an interesting perspective to take to to get people's reactions on where they were in in 73 when they did hear it. I know I know there's some people out there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely true. And uh, is there anything else that we want to say about this record? I, I don't think so. I think it's it's held up in, in, in its own way. It's not a born to run, but it is, uh, as we said earlier, it's the signs of a budding genius who would hone and and develop his craft over the next again 50 years totally agree and as a reminder to everyone we'll be back next time with our tour preview with that i'm going to do our little ending spiel number the brave is produced by bull market entertainment we're presented by evergreen podcasts on the web check us out at numbutthebravepodcast.com or reach out to us on twitter at nbtb podcast so for house words i'm flynn mclean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.